0: Two
1: pitch. A swing a Deep left. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. It's been a very, very, very busy few weeks for us here at Baseball America and that it was true through the last weekend. We had the trade deadline on Friday. Sunday was the draft pick signing deadline. Kamar Rocker did not sign with the Mets. We're definitely going to touch on that. And this morning, early on Monday morning, Team USA played Japan in a thriller in the Olympics in Tokyo. I'm here with JJ Cooper to hit on all of it. JJ, real quick, before we dive into the other stuff, I want to start with this Olympics matchup. Japan rallied to beat Team USA 7-6. to Japan advances to the semifinals with the win. Team USA is not eliminated. They're still in it. They just have a much tougher road to get to the gold medal game. You were up early this morning. I was up very early this morning here on the West Coast. What were your thoughts about how the game played out? And ultimately, how much of a gut punch was this for Team USA, which led 6-5 to five with one out in the ninth inning and ended up losing 7-6 to in 10?
0: Uh, what a game. I, that was everything. We have the Olympics. We have baseball back in the Olympics for the first time in too long, to just put it simply. And that's, to me, the selling point of why baseball should be in the Olympics. That is, two of the teams who really are i would say the the two number one seeds who came out of group play probably the two best teams here korea is going to make an argument on that i think pretty strong one but but you have them facing off and i'm not saying it was always a perfectly played game there were a couple of miscues in it and things like that but it was an incredibly thrilling game compelling game and one that that yeah the us i think it is a minor gut punch, at least if you're the U.S., if you're Team USA, because they were the team that was in control and just trying to hang on for really the second half of this game. And then th- there's no other way to put it. You you go to the extra innings. It's the international speed-up rule. So you have two runners on, runners on first and second. And I do believe that that is, when, that is where being the home team is a massive advantage. People wanted to talk about how it's because Japan can bunt and the U S cannot. Well, no, the difference is, is if you're playing the top of the inning, you can't play the one run strategy nearly like you can in the bottom half, because if you play for a one run strategy and your thought is, is we just want to make sure that we are more likely to score one run, even if it gives up the chance that we'll score multiple runs in the inning. Well, then Japan knows, okay, well, we have to now play for multiple runs in the inning. But when, the U.S. was unable to score a run in the top of the 10th. I I can't think of a team in the world better equipped when you say, there's not a player on that Japanese team. If you said, we need you to get a bunt down to advance these runners to second and third, and we're going to ask the next batter to hit a ball to the outfield and drive them in, there's not a player on that team. I think if you took any of the pitchers from that team and said, we need you to do either part of that. They'd be able to do it because this is something that they have practiced going back to when they were five and done a good, excellent job of. And the bunt that was laid down. Picture perfect. Beautiful. If yeah. you love bunting, you love the bottom of the 10th inning. Even if you're a USA fan, that was as good a bunt. That was like, you have no hope of throwing to third here. Just take your out. I'll give it to you. And, and boom, right after that, game's over. What did you think?
1: Yeah, it was a fantastic game. I think one thing we need to kind of clear up here just for U.S. fan base, the casual viewership, I think there's an automatic assumption a lot of times that, hey, it's baseball, America's pastime, we're the favorite, we're the best. And I think we need to clarify that in this specific tournament with Japan being able to bring the best of their major league to the Olympics and the United States being limited to non-40-man roster players, Japan is the favorite in this tournament. If the U.S. had won this game, that would have been the upset. Japan beating the U.S. is not the upset. So that's first and foremost. And the fact that the U.S. was able to hang with them as well as they did, I actually think was a very, very encouraging sign. Japan scored first, jumped out to an early lead. Team USA right away came back and took the lead in the top of the fourth. Japan tied it up again. USA again jumps right back in the lead. Tristan Casas with a mammoth opposite field home run. That was... One of the more impressive home runs of the entire tournament, really. The, the time, the situation, the swing, all of it. It was perfect. Again, Japan crawled back. And you kind of got the feeling Japan was knocking on the door. They put the tying run on in the sixth. Anthony Ghost got out of it. Then the tying run on third in the eighth. David Robertson got out of it. I think what's probably most disheartening about this to the U.S. is they brought in Scott McGuff for the ninth. Now, Scott McGuff was not part of of Team Yosea's Olympic qualifying team. He was added to this roster specifically for situations like this, specifically to face Japan. McGuff's a former big leaguer, briefly played with the Marlins back in 2015, but he's pitched the last three seasons in Japan. He was added to this roster because he knows these hitters. He's a closer in Japan. He has 16 saves this year. This is why he was on the roster. He knows these hitters, he knows their weaknesses, and the expectation was he will be the guy to beat Japan. David Robertson is this team's closer, but for Japan, Scott McGuff was gonna be the guy. And McGuff just didn't get the job done. And again, that's a testament to Japan. This is a really good team, blown saves happen. It's not to make McGuff the go to the game or anything, but it's definitely a gut punch for the US just in the sense of this is what Scott McGuff was on the roster to do, to close out Japan and he just didn't get the job done. Japan tied it, they won it in the 10th, and now Team USA has a much more difficult road to get to the gold medal game. They still have a road, but it's a lot more difficult. So let's,
0: I know that's the other part of this, that if you're a fan who's trying to follow this, I, there are, I love international baseball, but there are always little aspects of international baseball that are, that, that, that I feel like can be little, little hiccups along the way. Um, you know, I, I posted it today. Like there's times where you look at the box scores and it's like, wait, the first game that U.S. played, Ryder Ryan was listed as the first reliever coming in, even though he pitched the ninth. They had to figure out, oh, wait, like the relievers go in in order of the way they come in the game. Or today it showed a zero in the eighth inning even before they had played an out of the eighth inning. It's like, no, no, no. You wait to see, you know, whether someone actually scores in the inning before you do that. That tells us that the eighth inning, the top the eighth is done. But the other thing is, is the schedule on this is complicated. So Kyle, could you give us the, we'll try together, but could you give us the short summation? What is the USA's path to the gold medal game at this point?
1: I have a post coming up at baseballamerica.com explaining this simplest, shortest version. Team USA has to win their next two games to get to the gold medal game. If they lose either of their next two games, they're in the bronze medal game. They have no path to gold unless they win their next two games. They're going to play the winner of a game between the Dominican Republic and Israel. They have to win that. And then they're going to play the loser of Japan versus Korea in the first semifinal. So Team USA has to win these next two games to get to the gold medal game. That is their path. That's the simplest way to put it. And the other thing that
0: just stands out when we say that that does make it more complicated, the biggest problem they will have with that winning two games for a team that they will be favorites. Whoever wins Dominican Republic versus Israel, I would say that the U.S. will be favored to win that game. Whoever loses Korea, Japan, that's a a much tougher, uh, you know, it should be a tougher matchup. But the bigger thing is, is that that also means that the U.S. is looking at needing to play three more games to win a gold. Whereas Japan could conceivably just simply need to win one more game to be playing for the gold medal game, which means in a, in a tournament where pitching is a little bit limited, that's the big advantage for Japan, I would think.
1: And this is where playing an extra inning game and an extra inning game where your starter didn't get out of the third does hurt team USA. They used eight pitchers today. Shane Boz only made it through two and two thirds innings. And now You're short on pitching, knowing that you have to win three games essentially in four days to win a gold medal, win back to back games here, just to even get to the gold medal game. So it's going to be a difficult road. Again, it's not an impossible road. Uh, Team USA has veteran talent. They do have some good arms. Everything just would have been a lot smoother if they've been able to close this game out today but now they have to go out and there is no margin for error to win a gold medal. They have to win these next two games just to get to the gold medal game where likely you assume they're going to face Japan again. And maybe that's an opportunity for revenge. Again, Japan is going to be the favorite to win the gold medal. South Korea is the defending Olympic gold medalist. Now they are not as strong as they normally are as a team. They don't have the type of aces they've had in the past, like Hunjin Ryu, Kwang Young Kim. These guys are now in the majors. they don't really have the pitching they used to. Team USA already beat South Korea. They showed they can beat them. It really just comes down to taking care of business these next two days and theoretically getting a rematch against Japan in the gold medal game. That's the likely path for Team USA, but we'll see what happens.
0: It it will be fun again. And I like how you put it. The thing you got to remember in international baseball, the U.S. is... Cuba used to be the dominant team of international baseball for the longest time. Now, that's basically, if you said 20th century international baseball, that's what you would describe it. You can't say that in the 21st century. But the 21st century, you look at the Olympics, and it has been all over the map when we have had. U.S. won it in, in 2000, Cuba won it in four, and South Korea won it in 08. So this is something that, it's one of the arguments for having baseball in the Olympics. This is not a sport where you have one team that just dominates it it's it's multi it's many countries and also it's different continents that absolutely have teams that could win this and it's going to be fun to watch
1: and to follow up on that the one team you didn't mention there is japan japan being Mm -hmm. an international baseball power home of some tremendously talented players really who can compete with, with the best of the best in major league baseball we've seen that over the years they have never won olympic gold medal now They did finish first in the Olympics in 1984 when baseball was a demonstration sport, but there was no official medal awarded to their country's total. So Japan has never won an official gold medal in baseball. They're the best team in this tournament. They're on their home soil. They're expected to win. They've had some tight games so far, tighter than I think people might have expected. They had to score three runs in the bottom of the ninth to beat the Dominican Republic in the opener, extra innings today. But... There's a lot of motivation there for Japan to win that first Olympic gold medal on its home soil.
0: It's going to be fun. All
1: right, JJ, we're going to pivot into trade deadline, but first we do have to hit on Kamar Rocker. The Vanderbilt ace, 10th overall pick of the New York Mets, did not sign with the Mets by yesterday's signing deadline. Naturally, that led to social media kind of going crazy. A lot of LOL Mets type of chatter because... Mets and people like to make fun of their misfortune. And in fairness, the franchise has had its fair share of it. But I think it's important we jump on here to clarify that this was not an LOL Mets type of moment or, oh, only the Mets type of moment. This happens where teams draft players, the medical comes back, the team's not okay with it, and a deal falls apart. This is not the first time it has happened. It's not the last time it will happen. Take us through this, because I think, again, I think a lot of people's natural reaction was, oh, wow, the Mets, Mets again, when it's like, no, this happens to a lot of different teams.
0: Right. Um, If you want to criticize the Mets and say that they screwed up by not having a 11th through 20th round backup plan to basically use the 1.3 million-ish that they left on the table, and again, when I say 1.3 million dollars, it's not like there's an actual $1.3 million sitting somewhere. I'm saying they had that much bonus allotment that they were able to spend that they failed to do so. And that is absolutely, if you want to criticize them for that, feel free because that was a mistake. There's no question about it. You would ideally want to spend the entirety of your bonus allotment. The Mets made moves in the draft, drafted players later on after Kumar Rocker, for the idea of saving money so that they could go above slot to pay Rocker. You lose the slot allotment that you, for this year's draft, when you fail to sign the player. So you lose Rocker's allotment, but that doesn't mean that you lose the money you saved elsewhere by spending going under slot on players. And if you want to criticize them on that, I think that's an absolutely reasonable thing. And I'm not saying that the Mets are, I don't don't want to say that the Mets are, you know, there's not, that, there's not reason to criticism, criticize them on other things here. My big overarching point on this is, is that these issues are complex. And whenever you see this scenario happen, player is drafted, effectively having agreed to a number with the team that is drafting them. How the draft works is generally, not always, but generally, especially in the first round, you know signability you know the number before you pick them. The reason that the Mets move money around later is is they knew that they were looking to to basically have $6 million to spend to sign Kumar Rocker. But when the medical comes back and the team sees something that concerns them, very rarely at that point, do you have the two sides come together and say, yes, we see this medical, we agree, the number is going to be reduced. Everyone walks off, you know, happy about the, the, the deal we have come to. A lot of times what happens is the player doesn't sign. And I can, you can see that from both sides. If you're the player, a lot of times what happens here, especially with pitchers. And again, we don't know the exact details of what is the situation with Rocker, but normally what happens is the player, the pitcher generally says, I can pitch. I could go out there today and pitch. And it's, generally true. And the team in these cases will often say, essentially behind the scenes to the, no, we're not comfortable at that number because we think that there is a higher risk of you sustaining an injury than the average pitcher or the average player. And because of that, the two sides fail to come to an agreement. Now, if you're the Mets, (laughs) yes, you can say it is a black eye to fail to sign the 10th pick, but the MLB draft as it is constructed and something that the MLBPA has agreed to has essentially put in all kinds of safety nets for teams in these situations. Yes, the Mets lose the 10th pick this year. They didn't sign them, but they get the 11th pick next year. We have seen before that having that extra first round pick does allow teams to be very creative in a draft in which they have multiple picks. The biggest example that we'll ever have probably of that is the year that the Astros failed to sign Brady Aiken. And then the next year they go out and they draft Alex Bregman two overall. They also got Kyle Tucker in the first round in that draft and basically had a financial advantage over everyone that they used in that draft. So long-term for the Mets, if they, make a, if they do well with who they pick with the 11th pick next year, they don't get a long term detriment, even, except for the fact that they lose the, having a player for this year. The system as it is currently constructed, you can absolutely say if you want that this is not as fair to the player. Kumar Rocker has to re enter next year's draft. That's bad because Kumar Rocker doesn't really need another year of development in college baseball. If he goes to the, a partner league, that's not the same thing as pitching in AA or AAA next year. If he wanted to go international and go to Japan or whatever, that's not exactly a great avenue for him. It does slow his development. It slows his path to the majors. And there is no, there is no – MLB has made sure. There are no easy workarounds to get around that. Now, that's the system, though, that the MLB and the MLB Players Association has agreed to. And the other thing about it is, is that there's also a certain truth. Top players generally do not submit to pre-draft medical exams. The argument being a logical one, but that there, it's to the potentially to the detriment of the player. But MLB has also crafted in the CBA that there are protections that you receive. If you go through pre-draft MRIs, there are protections you receive that you do not, if you do not. Kumar Rocker did not go through those. And therefore, that essentially means he is left without really a good option other than we will see you again in June slash July, I guess, you know, of 2022. I mean, anything that you know strikes you, Kyle?
1: Well, I think the biggest things are taking a step back and just simplifying for, I think, again, I've had a lot of people reach out to me, asking me questions that are just very basic. Does he become a free agent? Why didn't the Mets do a physical beforehand? I think it's important to clear up, first and foremost, Kamar Rocker goes back into the draft next year. He's not a free agent. He's now in the 2022 draft. The second part of this is, and you alluded to it, there are no mandatory pre-draft medical examinations that teams can conduct. It is up to the player to submit to the pre-draft medical examination. In this case, Kamar Rocker did not. So there's no way for the Mets to know they weren't going to be comfortable with his medical until after the draft took place. And when you say, okay, well, why don't they mandate it? Well, again, these are all
0: subject to agreement. And if you are players, it is not necessarily in a player's interest that all players submit to pre-draft medicals there are reasons that players do not submit to pre-draft medicals pitchers as a general rule there are a lot of times that if you have a pitcher submit to a pre-draft medical they may find something that leads them to you know that that basically takes him off some teams boards because teams have different levels of acceptance of risk whereas you are more likely in some cases not even knowing that you had an injury before the draft, but by not doing that and you get drafted by a team, they may be more willing at that point to kind of accept a little bit more wear and tear than they would have pre-draft because at that point you've drafted the player and so maybe we'll work out a deal. There are reasons that this hasn't become a, a mandatory system, but the other one is, is that it the, the last piece of this that does stand out to me is, is and again, we've seen this with Brady Aiken, we've seen this with Carter Stewart, we've seen this, multiple times in the past where we've seen first round picks. There's a debate about their medical between the team and the player. The player does not sign. And then the team basically gets a pick in a later year. Well, the other part of this is those worth remembering with all this is when you say, you hear people say, well, why don't they become free agents? Well, for one, the draft is something that suppresses players signing bonuses. We know this. There were four loophole free agents many years ago and that year that they did, the number one pick in that year's draft, the 96 draft, Chris Benson, received $2 million, which was considered a great bonus at the time. And then Travis Lee, who went second, was declared a free agent, and he got $10 million. So we saw, like, there was a five-time multiplier on how much the player received. MLB is doing everything in its power, and they have, if you look at multiple CBAs that have gone by, MLB wants to make sure that there are no end rounds where non-major league players can figure out ways to receive uncapped money, larger amounts of money. We have seen that regularly. We saw that in the 2012 draft where they switched from, we strongly recommend that you don't sign for a signing bonus over this amount, to 2012 where they said, this is your amount of money. If you go over this, you are going to lose multiple first-round picks, which has essentially stopped everyone. So what did teams do? They took all that money, and a lot of them shifted it to international. And you saw the San Diego Padres spend more money on an international signing class than essentially four or five teams could spend in the draft combined. So what did MLB do? In the next CBA, they said, we're going to put a clamp on that. And so they put a rule in that said that, no, we're we're capping how much you can spend internationally as well on free agents, on international amateurs. So what did they also do in that? They put in a rule in that one that said, you're going to up the age of an international free agent being considered a veteran from 23 to 25, from five years to six years of foreign top-level experience. Shoei Ohtani goes from making $150 million maybe on the inter- on the free agent market to making a little over two and having to come in at a minor league deal with multiple years before he reached arbitration. They've done all these things because that is the way MLB is working on this. And so the reality of it is, is that they... There is no interest that MLB has in creating a system where players can simply fail to sign and become free agents in the draft. And no one has yet, there again, there may be there is a system, no one has come up yet with a system that is agreeable to MLB and the MLBPA to change that.
1: So with the Mets failing to sign Kumar Rocker, one thing that jumped out to me when I thought back to previous examples of a team and a player agreeing to a number beforehand, the medical comes back, the team's not comfortable with the medical and things fall apart. The first was the Astros with Brady Aiken, the first overall pick in 2014. And the second example that immediately jumped to mind was the Tampa Bay Rays with Drew Rasmussen, the 31st overall pick in 2017. In both cases, the team saw something in the medical they did not like, they backed away from it. And in a lot of cases, the team was vilified for doing so. In both cases, the pitchers needed Tommy John surgery very soon after. Brady Aiken needed surgery the following year, was a first-round pick of the Indians, but his arm never really came back. Drew Rasmussen went back to Oregon State, needed Tommy John surgery almost immediately, was drafted by the Brewers in the sixth round the following year. Now, he has reached the majors. He's currently with the Rays, but again, the two instances I could think of where a team backed away from a player because of a medical, they were vilified for it. The truth is they ended up being right.
0: I won't argue though. Carter Stewart, I will give Carter Stewart is another example. The Braves backed away from it because of medical. And so far Carter Stewart signed and went to Japan. And so far Carter Stewart has been healthy. So there are examples where, you know, he's multiple years now removed from that medical. And as of yet, now he's not exactly setting the world on fire in Japan. He's also quite young for a player trying to play in Japan but so he is a case of a player who did stay healthy, but there are other examples as well. You could go, uh, Matt Crook, uh, I think is another example that kind of matches what you said, which is where there's a dispute about the medical player decides not to sign and then has, goes on to have at least some sort of medical issue. It's again, the thing about it is, is my overarching thing on all this is, it's never simple on these. You want to make it simple. I get it that people want to make it simple. People want to make it that the Mets are idiots that they should have known all this before, or that, you know, Rocker should, you know, should have done something different or whatever. These things happen. It's complex. No one has of yet has figured out a way to prevent these go back. You could go back further than that under the old system. Barrett Lau was drafted a top 10 pick and the team that picked him looked at the medical and said, Ooh, we're not interested in signing him period. This was before they had all these rules. That was a case where he was made a free agent, but you know, the reality of it is, is that the medical did have concerns. And so he, he never really kind of, he pitched for a while, but it never had the success that the teams, you know, that everyone had hoped going into the draft. It doesn't mean that rock, it is very possible. Kumar rocker is going to be healthy and is going to pitch for the next 10 to 15 years. And we could look back on this and say, what did the Mets see? Why were they so concerned? But the thing I will say is, if you're saying this today, unless you are incredibly well-sourced, you're probably guessing on a lot of things right now on this. And I just look at it and say, it's a complex issue with no easy answers. And you can absolutely, if you want to lambast the Mets for it or rocker for it, feel free that you're right as a fan or someone who follows this. But that said, we won't know how this all shakes out, really, for, for several years to come.
1: You alluded to Kamar Rocker's options earlier. What are his options? Because we've seen first-rounders who didn't sign. They go back to college. Mark Appel went back for another year at Stanford. Kyle Funkhaus went back for another year at Louisville. That's typically the path here. The guys don't sign. They do go back to school and pitch another year, at least under this current system. Kamar Rocker, you've mentioned there's talk about him going and pitching independent ball, Vanderbilt. Some people have speculated going to Asia, although that doesn't make sense for a lot of reasons, which we can dive into. And there's also been talk that he'll just kind of showcase himself and not really play in live games for a year. What are his options and, and what are the best options for him to go back and be a high pick again next year?
0: The advantage he has over most players going back is that because of the 2020 lost season, Kuon Rocker from eligibility purposes is not, I mean, he's a senior from the standpoint of this will be his fourth season at Vanderbilt if he returned for another year. However, from eligibility purposes, you could really think of him as a rising junior, a redshirt junior if you want, because he will still have two years of eligibility remaining. We have seen in the past, Mark Appel is an example. Mark Appel went back for a senior year and it did not, he did not pay the normal senior penalty. We see seniors, normally the signing bonuses that a college senior receives are fractions of what you receive as a junior, because you don't have nearly the leverage to say, okay, if you don't sign me, I'll just go back to school. You're generally done for eligibility. In Rocker's case, he's not. He could actually go into the 22 draft as a Vanderbilt redshirt junior, whatever you want to call it, second year junior. And if he didn't sign, which would still be would be crazy if this happened again, but if he didn't, he would still technically have eligibility to play at Vanderbilt again in 2023, which no one expects. I, I would give you one in a million odds if Kumar Rocker would be pitching at Vanderbilt in 2023, but it is a slight unusual circumstance of this. That said, I don't know... <laughs> The, the tough part about this is, is I don't think Rocker has a great option here because no matter what he does in the lead up to the 2022 draft, I don't know how he answers the questions that now surround him going into the 2022 draft. He could go back to Vanderbilt. He could pitch every start pitch well next year. And you say, okay, well how does that do from the draft? Well, I don't know if it makes it any different because that's what Kumar Rocker did this year. He, he didn't miss a start. He, Jack Leiter missed a start to rest and recover. Kumar Rocker did his velocity varied this year. It dropped off at times, but him going out and making 15 starts next year at Vanderbilt doesn't necessarily answer questions about whether their teams are going to have concerns about something, some medical that we don't know, unless you're looking at, if you're a doctor and looking at the medical report, he goes to indie ball, which we've seen other pitchers do, we saw Luke Chavver do that. We've seen Aaron Crow do that. We've seen multiple pitchers do that over the years. But if he does that, it it does allow him to showcase it a little bit more. He could probably pick out four or five starts in the lead up to the draft and basically just show everyone he's healthy, he looks good, everything like that. But again. It doesn't answer the, this is, not a, this is not a player who's coming into the 22 draft. And the question he needs to answer is how good can he pitch? He's shown he can pitch really well. Japan, that avenue, you can do it. We got a story up at baseballamerica.com right now that explains it. But again, we talk about MLB closing off avenues. If he wants to be a free agent when he returns from Japan, he would need to sign with Japan, in Japan, with an MPB team, and not plan to return until he has six seasons of NPB experience. Well, does Kumar Rocker want to go to Japan from now and then return in 2028 or 2029? That doesn't seem like a really practical option. And even if he did, he very well could make less money over the next six years than he would if he stayed in the States. The top salaries that you see in the NPB normally range the, the top salary pretty much out there is just bumping up against $10 million US. Well, let, let's compare that to Carlos Rodon. I, I, I think Carlos Rodon is an instructive example for this. Carlos Rodon is a pitcher who came into his draft year at NC State, considered a possible number one pick, had a little bit of an up and down junior year, but still went third overall, signed a $6 dollar bonus that year, and then had a pretty rocky uh, pro career so far until this season. But for all the ups and downs he's had, he made that $6 million up front, 6 5, I think it was, up front in the draft, and he's made another $15 million already in his MLB career, and he will be a free agent at the end of this year, and coming off the year he's having right now, he's going to make a lot of money in free agency. I don't know if Kumar Rocker has a path that will get him $21 million or so in the next six years in Japan. Which is what he would need to do to probably break about even to what he could do in the U.S.
1: U.S. Yeah, obviously it's going to come down to a decision between him, his agent, his family, what he wants to do. But uh, there are a lot of options, and it's not clear any of them are great. I do wonder how the introduction of NIL legislation in college will potentially entice him to return to school but all indications initially are that he won't however Mm -hmm. there is money to be made there if he chose to go he's a big enough name that even though it's mainly going to be directed at college football and basketball players he's a big enough name in the sec it's an interesting thought that maybe he could pull in some money there we'll see what he ends up deciding all right JJ we're going to dive into the trade deadline here but first we're going to take a quick break and we're back. All right, JJ, this was one of the wildest trade deadlines in recent years. I'm going to stay away from the single wildest trade deadline of all time, low prisoner of the moment. But nonetheless, this was really, really, really just fast and furious and a lot of star players on the move. Max Scherzer, Trey Turner, Chris Bryant, Javier Baez, Anthony Rizzo, Craig Kimbrel, Joey Gallo, Kyle Schwarber, Jose Barrios, Starling Marte. I mean, on and on and on it goes. Nelson Cruz, Brad Hand. All in all, there were 50 trades made between July 22nd and July 30th. 10 players who are all-stars this year on the move, more than 60 prospects traded, just a wild and crazy deadline all the way around. What stood out the most to you from this deadline? Negative. I
0: I, mean, I consider myself an optimistic person, but, but one of the things that really stood out to me is to have two teams that have been powers utterly dismantle like they did. We had the Nationals and the Cubs where – two teams who have won World Series recently, and both of them pretty much almost anything that they could pry up in their dugout and send away, they did. I I, I sent out a tweet on Friday night and basically challenged anyone to try to predict the uh, the Nationals rotation lineup. And I got no takers on that because at the time, it was really going to be hard to predict who was going to play for the Nationals. And you could almost say the same thing for the Cubs. And the thing that stands out with both of those teams is these are two teams that I don't have a clear and obvious answer on how do they get back to where they were quickly. Now, you could always slip into the, the long slog of rebuild, but these are two teams that I would think are not looking to have this teardown and five-year uh, rebuild and especially in the case of the Nationals, they, they did a lot to help their farm system this past week. And they needed to, because that farm system, if you're going to tear down and say, we're going to rebuild, that farm system is really began the week very thin for a team that is, if they're going to try to build from within. Now, there are other ways you can rebuild. You can rebuild with trades. You can rebuild free agency, things like that. But generally, teams nowadays... Use free agency to and trades where you take on contracts to fill the pieces that you need around your core. Obviously, having Juan Soto as a core, that's about as good a piece to start a core as you can have. And it's not like the Cubs left are left with nothing. But I just look at both those teams and say, I don't know where they are. Not just in twenty two, but are these teams that can? I'm not sure that they can really compete again in twenty three either without spending a ton of money.
1: Neither of these two teams are going to be quick rebuilds. This is going to take a few years, but I want to take a step back. The Cubs made the playoffs five of the last six years, made three straight NLCSs, had an MVP award winner, a Cy Young award winner, an MVP runner-up, a Cy Young runner-up, and, of course, won the franchise's first World Series in 108 years. Go and look at the Nationals. They made the playoffs five times last decade, finished it by winning not just the World Series, but one of the most remarkable World Series in recent history and just the turnaround they put together going from 19 and 31 to World Series champions. I mean, we talk about the miracle Braves, the amazing Mets, what the Nationals did statistically was every bit as improbable, if not more so than these teams we put in our collective baseball lore. These two franchises have nothing to be ashamed of. As I wrote actually in our Cubs prospect handbook chapter this year, I did the Cubs. The first line of the intro for the Cubs was nothing lasts forever. That was my first sentence. And that's the case with this. Both the Nationals and Cubs, everyone involved should be very, very proud of what they accomplished. They built two perennial contenders filled with stars who year in and year out were among the best in the National League, won World Series. I mean, these were the two greatest stretches. And each of these franchises' respective histories, nothing the Cubs have done since the 1900s comes close to what they did these last couple of years. Nothing that the Nationals accomplished when they were in Montreal, certainly, and, and in their early years in Washington, nothing comes close to what they accomplished over these last five, six, seven, eight years. So uh, agreed. everyone should be proud of what was accomplished. And again, this is just the cycle. You bring up these tremendously talented groups You win as many games as you can with them. And then, like I said, nothing lasts forever. The time comes, things come to an end, and you got to just kind of start all over again. I think the Nationals especially, they made a real good faith effort to try and win this year. They brought in Josh Bell. They brought in Kyle Schwarber. They made some moves to try and win, and it just didn't work out. You know, the Cubs, you can argue, they didn't really make a good faith effort to win this year. They telegraphed their rebuild the moment they traded you Darvish for Zach Davies and four teenagers. But again, both of these franchises, incredible runs, and this is just the end. I thought someone put it out on Twitter, a photo that I thought was actually very appropriate. It was a photo of Anthony Rizzo, Javier Baez, and Chris Bryant it said, don't be sad that they're gone. Be glad that they were here. And I think that's incredibly appropriate and hundred percent correct. These were great runs. And I think if you go back, to talk to any Cubs fan at the start of the 2015 season and say, hey, you're going to get everything you're going to get over these next five or six years that they accomplished, but the trade-off is the next even five, six years might be ugly. Every Cubs fan alive would have taken it. Same with Nationals. I mean, if you go back to the start of 2012 and say, hey, you're going to make the playoffs five of the next seven seasons and win a World Series, but the trade-off is things might be kind of lean for the next, again, even five to six, maybe even seven years beyond that, every Nationals fan alive would have taken that trade. And it's definitely going to be odd seeing Max Scherzer in a Dodgers uniform and Rizzo, Bryant, and Baez wearing other teams' uniforms, but it's just the natural cycle of things. And I think while Cubs and Nationals fans are understandably sad and you don't want to see all these great players traded away, both these franchises had tremendous runs, and, and this is just the end which, which comes. It happens.
0: The thing that stands out to me at that what you said is both of these teams managed to reach the goal what's rough is when you do this and you fall a spot short or you never make it even to the world series and you have a really good team. And we've seen teams that have done that in recent years, but you're right. Both of these teams, they, they, they fulfilled the goal. You would love, yes, you would love to win more than one, but there are a lot of teams out there that winning one in the 21st century would just be amazing. And, they won their one. Now they have to start over to try to do it again. That perfect segue to kind of tee it back to you, which is you just mentioned back Scherzer. The Dodgers have won their one finally, but they're not ready to settle for one. And the thing that just stands out to me, I don't think this gets mentioned enough. The Dodgers right now are every bit the monolith, the... Every bit operational, Death Star, whatever you want analogy you wanted to put for the Yankees, in the uh, you know I know they don't have not won as many World Series as the Yankees did with the uh, Core Four and all that, but you look at this Dodgers team, they are willing, they approach it on all avenues. They spend on scouting, analytics, research and development, player training, free agency, any aspect they can do. They do it. they are their major league payroll is at a number where you could fit about four raised teams into a uh, Dodgers payroll. and they did it again at the deadline, and you can't help, but again, if you baseball's set up in a way, I, I, I don't think you can begrudge a team for spending money to try to win, and the LA Dodgers spent money and prospects to once again try to win
1: absolutely again this is what it's about you put in all your resources to try and win a world series and the dodgers do that a lot of teams talk about doing it and don't do it the dodgers do and they deserve credit for that it's not something to shame them about and the prospect costs they gave up on the one hand caber reese is a very good prospect josiah gray is a very good prospect but if you're the dodgers you have will smith in the majors you have a lot of other really good young pitchers both in the rotation and in your farm system so you can trade those two and not feel like oh gosh we're really going all in here and sacrificing our future for this. And that actually kind of brings me back to the Nationals. I thought on the whole, the Nationals brought back a lot of really, really intriguing talents, some in the upper levels, some in the lower levels. Caper Reese is a good player. Josiah Gray is a good player. I thought their return, considering it was both Scherzer and Turner, was a little light. If you're the Dodgers, you are thrilled that you got Trey Turner and Max Scherzer for again two good prospects but two guys who because you're the dodgers you didn't really need them to be contenders in 2026 and without them we're not and two other prospects who were okay but they're not great i actually thought the nationals this was a little bit light the rest of their deals were fine the dodgers did great on this trade and the giants were in first place and they also aced this deadline bringing in chris bryant one of the best players available who fits their needs to a T. The Central West race is going to be really, really fun. And I actually think the Dodgers and Giants separated from the Padres in this. The Padres are in third place. They needed starting pitching in the worst way. Didn't even get a single starter. If you get beat on the Max Scherzer sweepstakes, so be it. But to not even just say beat the Phillies package for Kyle Gibson, Ian Kennedy, and Hans Kraus, that's a misstep. And I think the Padres fall further behind from the pack with the moves the Dodgers made and the moves the Giants made.
0: I thought that the return that the Nats got for uh, for Scherzer Carter was was kind of what I expected. Um, I think part of that is is I don't know how many teams I know that he's in the the final year of his deal, but how many teams have the payroll room to even acquire a half year of of Scherzer and <laughs> the Rays are not part of that. The Rays are not going to be able to trade for Scherzer. The There are other teams where I just don't think they're part of it because Scherzer's making some $34.5 million this year. I know you're not going to pay him the full amount in this, but that that probably does preclude some bidders. And if you look at it, that was the best trade package that anyone received at the deadline. Now, it was also the biggest package that anyone gave away at the deadline as well, but it's... (laughs) in a, in a world where teams seem to sometimes again, so I so it no sounds crazy to say this at baseball America, but we always say it. They sometimes overvalue prospects because of the oh, absolutely, absolutely of six years of team control. But in a, in a deal like that, there were only four players in our top 100 who were traded at the deadline. And two of them were in that deal. Um, again, it is notable just, getting prying away even one top hundred prospect in a deal has become very difficult to do. And we saw that again this year that there, there were a lot of good prospects traded. There were very few top tier prospects traded at the deadline.
1: Another team that did very, very well at the deadline for themselves was the Yankees. They need to get more left-handed. They need to get more athletic. They need to get better defensively. And they did all that by acquiring Anthony Rizzo and Joey Gallo. The Yankees really were one of the big winners of this deadline. Again, is it going to be enough to vault them up to first place in the AL East? We'll see. A lot has to happen. But I do think the Yankees got substantially better. And while they gave away some interesting low-level prospects and took advantage of their depth, they didn't give away any of their very, very best guys. And I think at the end of the day, if you do that, that makes you a big trade deadline winner. If you can acquire impact talent and keep the top of your system, it's a pretty good deadline.
0: And... I, that's again, that's one of those deals where I saw the, there was a lot that, that was a, that was a trade that frustrated me like the initial reactions in some ways. I've got to be honest about it. But, but the reality of it is, is that I can argue that trade one of two ways, which is always to me, like a lot of trades, we too often, I think fans view these trades and they think that it should be like a fantasy baseball trade where if you, Aren't, if you don't end the trade, standing over the prostrate body of the victim in the trade who you utterly destroyed, then it's not a good trade. And a lot of times, trades in Major League Baseball, which are generally between teams who are both reasonably intelligent, often end up being trades where you say, I can see that from both sides. And at the Yankees, they sold high, potentially because they had a number of players that they shipped in this deal. If you started where we started the season in 2021, they would not have been players who would have been able to garner a Joey Gallup. At the same time, we're coming off of a year where none of these players played games that counted. And so because of that, we've heard a lot of really good things about Josh Smith this year and maybe they sold low. Maybe we're going to look in two years from now and go, Oh, Josh Smith's even better than we thought. But if you're the Yankees, you could trade Josh Smith because you've got Anthony Volpe. And Anthony Volpe, for everything we've, good, we've heard good about Josh Smith, we've heard even more about Anthony Volpe, both of whom are players who have taken a big step forward this year from where they were and where they were perceived to be coming into the year. So you look at that, you say the Rangers, what the Rangers did here is they didn't get one elite prospect in the Gallo deal. They got four good to okay prospects. I'd say they got a couple of that second tier type prospect and then a couple of third tier and they're spreading around their risk. That can work out. Now, again, Josh Smith, absolutely. They could have received, potentially if it all breaks right, they could have received three future regulars in this deal if it all breaks right. Three out of four would be a great return. But if they get one to two good, Uh, you know, average to above average regulars out of the deal. That would also, as you've studied it before, that would be a good return in a trade like this. They they diversified their risk a little bit by getting multiple players instead of it being something where you say, we're going to get one top hundred prospect for Joey Gallo and see how that turns out.
1: I thought the Rangers did fine in this trade. Could they have used some frontline talent? Yes, but I understand the Gallo trade. The other trade, they got fleeced by the Phillies, but that's a different story. I wanted to focus more on some of the other winners this trade deadline. I thought the Astros did exceptionally well. They really, really needed bullpen arms. They got a lot of good ones at very little cost. It was a great deadline for them. The A's as well, going and getting Starling Marte. Jesus Luzardo was the cost, but they have a good rotation. Marte is a difference maker, and you know it seemed like Luzardo might have needed a fresh start somewhere else. Thought they did very, very well at the deadline. Brought in some bullpen help as well. Brought in Josh Harrison, Jan Gomes. And the Blue Jays, they have a pennant worthy lineup. They did not necessarily have a pennant worthy pitching staff. They addressed that aggressively and decisively. They acquired Jose Barrios. They acquired a lot of bullpen arms really in the month leading up to the deadline. Those were three other teams that stood out for me. On the selling side, JJ, we talked about the Nationals. Do you feel like the Cubs got enough for everything they gave up given, again, Bryant, Rizzo? Baez, Kimbrell, as well as a lot of other guys like Andrew and Ryan Tapera. I mean, they gave up quite a lot. Do you think they got enough back?
0: Probably not. But at the same time, the other thing that stands out with the with what they did is they traded Reynolds. They had a team that in many cases, there wasn't, a, I think the Kimbrell trade is an to this, but a lot of these guys, it's a question of, you're you're trading rentals and so okay how much are you going to get in return but it is notable we talk about what the nationals did we we talk about what the twins did if we want to talk about that and you compare it and you say no the cubs did not bring back an equivalent haul to what those teams received even though if you were talking about the volume of talent traded i think the cubs probably rank there with pretty much anyone as far as they traded half their lineup and, uh, and, in uh, you know, and their closer at the deadline. So you could say from that perspective that, that maybe not, because I mean, we, we ranked every prospect traded at the deadline. We gave the Cubs that their best player they received was sixth on, on our list. And the next best was, uh, 13th. So we didn't exactly say, you know, see them as bringing back in a, an overwhelming haul. And by the way, in this trade deadline, by the time you get to the teens, you are talking about interesting prospects, but you are not talking about not just top 100 guys. You're not talking about top 200, 250 guys in the minors. You are talking about guys who have a chance, but have some hickeys that you also are very apparent at this point in their careers.
1: Yeah. I thought the Cubs did okay when you look at the total haul. And part of that is, it's not just the prospects. Getting Nick Madrigal back and Cody Hoyer in the Craig Kimbrell deal, I thought, was a nice move for them. They brought back two really, really good young big leaguers there. And again, you add in, I thought they did perfectly fine on the Baez trade. Getting Pete Crow Armstrong was really, really nice. And you know, Trevor Williams is not a significant loss uh, having to throw him in there. They did fine on the Rizzo trade. The Bryant trade was a little bit light. But on the whole, I thought the Cubs had more good trades than not and thought they turned out okay. I really thought of all the sellers The team that really had the best deadline was the Twins. They traded Jose Barrios, and a couple people were saying, wow, I can't believe the Blue Jays gave up that much for Jose Barrios. They're absolutely right, too, when you look again at how good this lineup is, the window of opportunity they have. They needed a right-hander at the front of the rotation to pair with Robbie Ray and Hunjin Ryu. And Austin Martin and Simeon Woods Richardson are two very interesting and good prospects who are in AA A but both do have some hickeys, have some warts. Their stock is not as high as maybe it's been perceived to be just because there have been concerns on both. At the same time, if you're the twins, yeah, you take a shot on two really talented young kids in AA and hope they work through those hickeys and those warts. On top of that, I thought getting Joe Ryan in the trade for Nelson Cruz was really, really, really good. I really like the twin strategy here of getting good, young, upper level minor leaguers who can help them relatively soon and also have upside. These are not just guys who are close, but they're fringe guys. I mean, all of these guys have a chance to be impact players. Even Drew Stroutman, You found a lot of people who had you know, the race system as scouts and said, we really like this guy. This guy has a chance to be a fairly significant part of a team down the line. I thought of all the sellers, the twins are actually the team that killed it.
0: There's one other uh, buyer that I wanted to mention, which is, I'll give creativity points to the, to the White Sox. I know that there are understandably fans who are ups, White Sox fans who are upset to see Nick Madrigal uh, traded away, but at the same time, the White Sox have a absolutely legitimate chance of winning a World Series this year. They have run away with the Central, the AL Central, even though they have been as beset by injuries as almost anyone. They're starting to get some of those guys back, and the, the key thing to me is they've managed to do this. They have a farm system. The minute you saw, the minute I saw that they were trading for Craig Kimbrell, I knew I could not come up with an assemblage of prospects. If the White Sox had said, hey, Cubs, here's our farm system. Will you take it for Kimbrell? I I don't know if that had been enough. They got creative. They didn't have the farm system make this kind of trade. Nick Modrigal was not going to help their 2021 team because he's out with a hamstring injury. Craig Kimbrell will. Craig Kimbrell will also probably – he has an option for next year. He'll probably help their 2022 team as well. Or if nothing else, they could turn around and trade him in the offseason and get additional value back. But the other thing about it is, is that Nick Madrigal, is, as good as he is, if I'm ranking the most important players, hitters, let's just say position players, for this White Sox team for 2022 and beyond – Nick Madrigal isn't the first name off my, you know, out of my lips. And he's not the second, the third, or the fourth. He may not be the fifth. This is a team that has this great core of offensive talent. And they can find another second baseman. Even though Nick Madrigal has a chance to be a a very productive, top of the order, table setter type for the Cubs. But you look at that bullpen now, and you get to the playoffs, and you say, You have Hendricks and you have Kimbrell and you have Kopech and you have Garrett Crochet. You move everyone else just down the level a little bit and you get to the fifth inning against them in games. It's going to be really frightening trying to get runs.
1: And on top of that, they have a great starting rotation who can give you seven. So you don't have to burn those guys. And by the time you get to the World Series, they're all worn out. This is a really good White Sox team. I agree this was the right time to strike. And especially with the lineup, get Elo Jimenez back, you get Luis Robert back, all of a sudden this team looks very, very good. The only concern is they're playing terrible defense again. It's been an issue throughout the year and they just played some more in their series against the Royals. So, but we'll see how that kind of gets better as the year goes on. JJ, just a couple teams real quick before we finish up that maybe did not have the best deadlines in your eyes. I know for me, the Padres had to get a starting pitcher. I think the issue now is, not even going deep in the playoffs, to me, there's no way they do. I think there's a real risk they miss the playoffs. They're starting rotation. They needed reinforcements in the worst way. And there's a real risk here that the guys they have are going to tire out and they're just not going to have enough arms. They're going to get gassed down the stretch. Now we'll see. But I thought the Padres, they had to get something, anything, to help that starting rotation. The fact they got nothing to me, I thought, was a very, very poor deadline for them. The Mariners as well. The Kendall Graveman trade was completely unnecessary in case of a general manager. I mean, the players said it themselves, playing fantasy baseball, not actually taking into account these are real human beings and clubhouse dynamics matter and do affect wins and losses. And he basically short-circuited his own team, which is the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do as a general manager. And then the Rockies, uh, again, if you want to make the argument that the packages that they were receiving for Trevor's story were lesser than what they would get with a comp pick. That's fine. That that's fair. That's very, very possible. If you want to make the argument that John Gray wants to resign with them and trading him somehow would have hampered those efforts. Okay, fine, whatever. But to not even trade any of the other bit players aside from Michael Givens to basically keep this team intact. I mean, just, blows the mind so I think those for me were the three teams that for different reasons really did not help themselves at the deadline and I'll go a step further actively hurt themselves it's not like they stayed neutral and just didn't help it didn't hurt they actively hurt themselves
0: I gotta say with the Rockies I, I don't I don't have a, a good explanation for essentially sitting out the trade deadline I I, I know that that is a team I, you hate to say it Team in disarray. But at this point, this is a team that is with a hollowed out front office. This is a team that is that is basically trying to get to the offseason to reassess and rebuild not just the team, but the structure. I mean, we take, we we don't know who's going to be running that team, whether it's going to be Bill Schmidt going forward or whether it will be they'll they'll bring someone into the offseason. But that said the, why not trade Daniel Bard? Why not trade, as you said, like even if you traded John Gray, okay? Well, if John Gray wants to come back there, why don't you say to him, John, we want to give you the opportunity to compete in a pennant race. We still love you. We'd love to have you back after the season. I, I don't think that that necessarily causes you any issues in saying. And, and by the way, as a parting gift to you know to you, you know it, Trevor Story seemed shell-shocked when he talked about it. He kind of had said his farewells, was ready to move on and actually get to play in games that mattered in August and September and hopefully October. And instead, nope, stick around. I I don't I don't have a great answer for it. And again, the the rough thing about this is is that this is not a team. This is a team that's starting a rebuild it's not in the middle of a rebuild it's it's going into 2022 and you look at it and say is the farm system one that you look at and say oh it's going to be able to start filtering in stars future potential stars no not really that's that's really not where they are right now they are years away and i i will feel for them whoever is running the rockies You are years away in a division where it could not be tougher because you throw – the Giants have had a brilliant last two years. I don't know another way to put it. The fact – if you are competing in that division with the Dodgers and Padres who are throwing everything at each other, you're doing well. To be the team that they've been chasing for much of the year is truly remarkable – and I still at times look at it and kind of wonder, I just still don't know exactly how they've done it, but they've done it well. And if you're the Rockies, I don't know how you don't have any real advantages that you could point to and say, this is how we're going to be able to compete with three of the best teams and three of the right now best organizations in all of baseball.
1: A lot's going to have to happen for them to get there, and it will not be a one-year fix. Uh, that's that's the simplest way to say it. So, All right, JJ, well, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Gosh, this has been a crazy month. We had the draft, we had All-Star Game we and Futures Game, we had mid-season updates, we had the trade deadline, and now it's moving to August. Again, we had the draft signing deadline, have Olympics going on. Uh, we've got tons of coverage of all of it up at Baseball America. It's a lot up at the site today, so make sure and check it out. Thank you, guys. All right, everyone. That'll do it for another Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For JJ Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there.